0: Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome you to Radiology Across Borders podcast series, the Rabcasts. In the next thirty minutes, we will be interviewing a leader in their field of expertise, an individual who, through their skills, has had a significant impact both locally and globally, and in many cases has shaped that conversation. My name is Suresh De Silva. It is with great pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Frank Gallard to the Radiology Across Borders RAPCAR series. Dr. Frank trained as a radiologist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital after graduating from the University of Melbourne. He completed two additional years of neuroradiology fellowship training, a form of diagnostic radiology that focuses on the head, the brain, spine, and neck to diagnose stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and other neurological conditions. In addition to his role as a consultant neuroradiologist, Frank is notably known within the industry and globally as the founder, editor, and CEO of radiopedia.org, which he started in 2005. Radiopedia is an online collaborative radiology reference for radiologists and other healthcare professionals globally. His work has been recognized as a cornerstone of medical education throughout much of the world, in particular, recognizing his contribution in developing nations. In 2021, Frank was awarded an Honorary Fellowship of the Royal College of Radiologists, a deserved award that reflects his notable contributions to radiology education. And on a personal level, Frank has been very active through Radiopedia and through his own Project Alice program that he runs in the work of Radiology Across Borders, particularly with regards to the International Certificate. And a lot of the success that we have achieved has been due to this collaboration. On a personal level, this is the first time that I've actually got to meet Dr. Frank Gaylard. So it's a privilege to chat with him on this Rapcast series. So welcome, Frank Gaylard, to the Rapcasts. Thank you for inviting me, Suresh. Frank, before we get on to talk about radiology and radiopedia, I was wondering whether I could ask you to tell us a little bit more about your career before radiology and what made you actually choose to go into radiology. Uh, The simple answer is my wife. Right. So (laughs) when I was
1: 13, (laughs) I think, I decided that uh, being a brain surgeon sounded like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And why? Uh, I don't really know, but I think it had something to do with cracking heads open and the <laughs> fact that it was hard and that there was, you know, QDOS associated with it. And I didn't really revisit that choice until I was a neurosurgery registrar, non-accredited, at the age of 27 or something. And then at that point, maybe a month into that year, I um, I realized that I I really didn't have the attention span for neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also didn't like being awake at night as much as neurosurgeons seem to be. Mm -hmm. And I had a bit of a career crisis and I didn't really know what to do. And I contemplated leaving medicine altogether. Mm -hmm. Came pretty close to doing that. And I thought as a Hail Mary, well, the the thing that I'd been trying to do for 14 years hadn't worked out for me. So instead of carefully planning the next step, let's just pick something sort of randomly. Mm -hmm. And my then girlfriend, now wife, Natalie, um, had always wanted to do radiology and so I thought, well, why not? I'll do that. (laughs) And so I applied to only two hospitals and uh, I was fortunate enough to get into one of them. I, I applied to the hospital that Natalie also applied in and uh, she got the job and I didn't right. get that job, which is um, part of the course, yeah. really. She's the brains, brains <laughs> of the operation. Uh, but I was lucky to get the other job. And ha- if I hadn't got that job, I think I probably would have taken at least a year off and possibly dropped out of medicine entirely. What so you, it was a bit happenstance, really. But, yeah. I mean, I ended up in neuroradiology, so the interest in neuroimaging and um, you know, imaging of the brain had been sown mm. during my neurosurgery and undergraduate career already, so it wasn't that far a step, I suppose. Mm.
0: That's quite funny. I I remember when I finished medical school and I was thinking, I don't want to do medicine, and I almost did law. And so it's a similar story to you where – after a year of doing medicine, I thought this is great. I can't. I can't do anything else. But we all have these doubts about what we want to do. So it could. We could have had Frank Gaylard as a neurosurgeon. Oh, if I it, would have been if, a terrible neurosurgeon <laughs> if it wasn't for your <laughs> wife. I hear your wife's in radiology too. In terms of she's uh, a, yes. the um, she's the uh, director of one of the bigger hospitals in
1: Melbourne. Yes, she's the medical director of the radiology department at the Austin
0: Hospital, which is one right. of the big teaching hospitals here in Melbourne. Melbourne. So that means that two professionals working very hard must be a very busy household that you live in.
1: Uh, too busy, yes. Uh-huh. And and I think for the first, um, well, while the kids were being born and, and small, Natalie worked part-time mm-hmm. and uh, now she works I don't know, sixty, seventy, eighty hours a week, something ridiculous, wow. and so yeah. I'm I'm gradually winding down my hospital work, yes, and focusing on Radiopedia, and uh, it's my turn to take a bit of time off and spend time with boys, Actually, who are could, only yeah. ten and twelve, I think, something like that,
0: right, around ten and twelve, right. Have Have you found that with the advent of all these wonderful technologies that we have now, doing what you do? has become a lot easier in terms of the work and combining it with the radiopedia. Um, do you mean by work from for the hospital? Work from the hospital and just having the flexibility to do other things. Now I can say with with what I do, having the flex flexibility with teleradiology, teleradiology reporting, et cetera, gives me a lot of scope to manage my day a lot better. And
1: yeah, so I mean we do, do we are set up to do reporting from home. Uh, but it's not something we do a great deal of because working at a tertiary or if you want even quaternary referral centre like Royal Melbourne, Mm. a lot of the work you do is not the reporting. Mm -hmm. It's the interaction with clinicians and the teaching and the multidisciplinary meetings and the fielding questions about sort of Cases that are not straightforward, mm-hmm. and uh, you can do that from home, but it is it's mm-hmm. harder. And I think the value really is for us to be on on site. Um, so it certainly made it a lot easier. And COVID mm-hmm. was really a driving force behind a lot of these processes being revised and enabled. We didn't have home reporting before COVID. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have online meetings before it, and there were lots of things that no one had had the energy to tackle until you were forced to. Mm. And it's a silver lining of sorts because I think it's made us more flexible. Mm.
0: Look, the reason I ask you that is that I asked this particular same question to Professor Bruce Forster, who offline we were discussing and we both know, the former head of the University of British Columbia, Um, And I asked him this on the last Rabcast, which will be made available in a few weeks' time. And I'm sure there are many young doctors who would like to get your opinion on this. I'm interested to know what you would say to any medical student or junior doctor who is considering a career in radiology.
1: So we're talking about people who have already made the first mistake, which is doing medicine. Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) Exactly. So, well, let's put it this way. I keep telling my boys not to do medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not because medicine isn't interesting. It certainly is. And radiology particularly is still incredibly fortunate in its flexibility and interest. But overall the scope to be an individual mm-hmm. within medicine is always being eroded by the fact that, and rightfully so, that you need to conform to best practices that are established by large trials or colleges or insurance companies, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I think largely you turn up to work and you do the thing that you're trained to do and, you go home and it's a technician-like job, mm-hmm. which like a lot of technician-type jobs can be really rewarding to get really good at the thing you're doing. But I think the the aura and prestige and individual craftsmanship and almost art-like aspect to medicine that was definitely true hundred years ago, probably still largely true 50 years ago, and, and still largely true 20 years ago when I trained, that's less and less the case. Mm-hmm. And medicine's expensive. And so there's lots of incentives to make processes as not idiosyncratic as mm-hmm. possible. Um So of all the different specialties in medicine, I think radiology is probably one of the most interesting and ones that will remain interesting for the longest. And I know that's a little bit of a contrary view because there's a lot of talk about radiologists being replaced by AI. Mm I don't think we'll be replaced. I think we will become the custodians and the overseers of many of these processes, Mm -hmm. which are really interesting. Um mm. but if I had my time over uh, i
0: 'm not sure i 'd do medicine. I think I 'd probably go into i t or something else. I think you're a man of many talents, and I think you're one of these souls who could partake in many different areas <laughs> and uh and I think you know with with the advent of all these new technologies it's, it is opening up a lot of options for different people um I am how So much- I think, sorry, before you go on, I think that the, the biggest advice I would give to
1: someone who was contemplating whether they wanted to go into radiology or medicine was to really spend some time understanding what it is that gives them joy and meaning out of what they do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. If the thing that brings you joy is building things and being able to point to them and, and look back at the thing that you have achieved, then medicine's not great for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're happy to point to your private practice or yeah. your CV or the, the grants that you've received. Radiology, its great benefit is you turn up, you do your work, you go home and the clock resets. And if you go and leave for three weeks, it's, it's fine. But if you need to feel like there is an incremental building of something, medicine and particularly radiology aren't great. And for me, I know that that is probably the strongest driving factor for me to feel like there's a point to what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's why just working in radiology in private practice would not work for me. And I get my enjoyment and fulfilment out of radiology through Radiopedia because I can look back at it and see where the hours that I've put in have gone, yep. whereas looking back at 5,000 or 10,000 reports a year or whatever it is that I do, that doesn't give me the same
0: sense of meaning. Uh, I, I, Mike, I actually totally agree with you there. And radiology cross borders is similar to Radiopedia in terms of thinking outside the box and growing something. Okay, so with radiology, I actually personally found that, yes, you can do your reports, you can specialize in certain areas and you can make a difference in terms of the clinical side. But I totally agree. In terms of building something, you have to think outside of the box in medicine these days. Otherwise, you will end up doing the same thing on a repetitive basis. And I think that's probably why Radiopedia has been such a success because you have thought outside the box and you brought in all these different variables which most radiologists just wouldn't have any idea about. Frank, you are highly regarded in neuroradiology. You're well-published. You're an academic and clinical neuroradiologist and director of research for the radiology department at Royal Melbourne Hospital. What made you choose neuroradiology as opposed to any other subspecialty in radiology? So clarification, I was
1: the uh, director of research Mm -hmm. and uh, as part of a bit of a reshuffling of my life, I've actually stepped away from that and closed down my research lab and have Mm -hmm. stepped away from a lot of my academic uh, duties. But yes, I was all of those things. Neuroradiology really came out of... I suppose the same areas of interest that drew me to neurosurgery have drawn me to neuroradiology. Uh, And that is uh, there's a lot of competitiveness amongst radiologists that their area is the most interesting one and the most complicated one. Mm. And, um, you know, you'll you'll hear jokes about how breast imaging really only has one or two diseases Mm -hmm. in organs that can be removed in their entirety and people survive uh, compared to, you know, abdominal injuries, yeah. uh, abdominal imaging that has many organs and many pathologies. Uh, so if you, you're looking at it from that point of view, I think neuroradiology does stack up quite nicely because the brain has a, a tremendous scope of diseases. Um, and they're fairly idiosyncratic and esoteric and it takes a lot of time to really get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. I suspect exactly the same thing is true for every area once you get into it enough and you get into the details of it. It's a little bit like speaking to a diehard Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. If you're not into the area, Star Wars and Star Trek seem kind of the same. But if you're, oh, no, not at all. If you're into Very it, different. then the differences are massive. Yes. And, uh, you know, you'll be able to speak at length about the tiny differences. I've always been drawn by the idea of where consciousness or cognition comes from, free will. Those sort of idle thoughts have always captured my imagination from, from the age of a child. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything deep or meaningful to add to the conversation, but it, I find it interesting more than, you know, the large bowel. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose at the end of the day, you have to turn up to work and do something that is interesting to mm-hmm. you. And as much as I tried to move away from brain related things, I started doing neurosurgery, then I had a career crisis and did radiology with no real thought about what I would do. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my training, I actually applied to do a chest fellowship mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know why, but I didn't get it and uh, I got the neuro one instead and so I just kept coming back to this yeah. track and it, it seems to work well. Mm. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, you know, again, going back onto the advice to someone, I don't think the thing you're going to specialize in matters as much as the the shape of the kind of work you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think had I done chest, I would have been just as interested in the same way as I am in, in neuro um, because the thing I like is to keep scratching the surface and trying to understand things well enough for yeah. myself uh, and to be able to teach them. And I think I would have been happy doing that for liver or lung or, or something else.
0: Yeah, an inquisitive mind. <laughs> I don't know, but no, I think that's uh, that. I mean, that leads me to the next question that I want to ask you. And we did allude to this, or did, you did allude to this a bit earlier on, and that's artificial intelligence. You are active in artificial intelligence work. Was and, <laughs> was yeah, more so was <laughs> now with the with the uh, research uh, hat being. Temporarily put aside, but you were also involved in computer aided diagnosis. And it's really hard these days to have one of these RAVcasts that we do without touching upon AI because it has such an impact on both radiologists and patient outcomes. What do you think will be the effect of artificial intelligence on what radiologists will be doing? And what will our job look like in the future?
1: So, this is a a question that you get asked all the time and I honestly am quite ambivalent about it. I think a lot of the research in AI that is coming out is completely pointless in terms of medicine mm-hmm. you you see the vast majority of the studies that are being published and there's such a bias towards, grants and and studies being published if they have the words machine learning or artificial intelligence in there, that there's a real incentive for people to pump out these studies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are addressing questions that aren't actually that clinically useful or mm-hmm. the volume of them isn't large enough to make a big difference. So, you will see studies that compare the ability of a particular neural network to experts in the ability to distinguish toxoplasmosis from CNS lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And, and that's great to be able to do that. But when you then try and run it in practice, most of these solutions don't work. Mm-hmm. They are overfitted to the data set that they've got. Yeah. And, And the proof in the pudding is after, what is it now, almost 10 years of this new second wave of AI enthusiasm, there's not a great deal that's come out into everyday practice. And yet at the same time, we have really basic tasks that humans are terrible at doing that go unnoticed by research. So, identifying cerebral aneurysms on an MRA that you do Mm -hmm. um, routinely, Mm. I'm still looking at them. I'm still trying to find a two-millimeter little bleb off the side of a vessel. And I can't help but wonder, isn't this the kind of thing that actually AI and computer-aided diagnosis should be able to do really well and it would be really useful. And there are some of these programs coming out. And hopefully, if the incentives of publication and grants get out of the way from distorting the landscape, hopefully we will see more and more assistive interfaces in our everyday reporting that Mm. make it easier for us to do tedious, repetitive things that humans aren't good at and free us up to do the things that actually we're already pretty good at, which are those higher level um, integrative kind of diagnoses. Mm. So in terms of where we will be, well, I think there's really two, two options. One of them is... Things will be pretty much the way they are, except we will have some new tools that make certain tasks easier. Mm -hmm. And that is the uh, pessimistic or maybe optimistic, really, the optimistic view that AI is reaching a new plateau and that the enormous optimism that we had five or 10 years ago about this new wave um, was unwarranted and that it'll be great for certain things, but it won't be as revolutionary as was first thought. And and the second view is, I think, what is the pessimistic one, which is not so much that radiologists are out of a job, but that AI creates such an upheaval in society overall that the last people that should be concerned about their jobs are radiologists. I'm going to be because hmm. if you if you generate a a general artificial intelligence that's capable of replacing me, then I'm not the only one that's going to be replaced. Yeah, you can look at replacing every truck driver, every taxi driver, every accountant, every whatever. Mm-hmm. And and if you're looking at some of the image generation uh, AIs that have recently come out, like. Um, DAL-E or DALI Mm -hmm. uh, that you can put any text description and it generates artists like images then if you're a graphic designer or an illustrator you should be probably worried as well Uh, and I suppose that's the pessimistic view because I think there is a chance that over the next few decades AI does actually live up to its promise in which case we're in for a bit of a rough trot before we adjust.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question, which is probably going to be a little bit, uh, I guess, what's the word? Uh, Not challenging. It's going to be uh, emotive in many ways for those people in the AI industry. Do you think AI has achieved what the AI industry have told us it would have achieved by now for radiology? No.
1: No. No. Okay. No. For in in the in the setting of medicine, yeah, largely AI has been a way of spinning up startups and selling products that have not made a meaningful change to patient outcomes or day to day practice. Mm-hmm. And that's you, you know I'm sure there are exceptions. There may yeah. well be hospitals that have. AI solutions in place now that they feel make significant differences. But Royal Melbourne Hospital is uh, a large teaching hospital in one of the wealthiest countries, in one of the wealthiest cities of the world. Mm -hmm. And we don't see the effect there. Mm -hmm. And if we're not seeing it there, It's a sure thing that the vast majority of the world has been unaffected by this.
0: This There may
1: be the Mayo Clinics and other research institutions that are, you know, another order of magnitude above where we are in terms of resources who have the ability to integrate the very latest. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that over the next 10 years these things are coming. But at the moment,
0: most of these are oversold and under delivery. Yeah. I've always said this, and I've asked the same question or we've had the same discussion with two people before this, specifically about AI. I always have said that I believe artificial intelligence, be it a chest X-ray or a CT brain, is going to be most in need in places where you have a dearth of radiologists, such as developing nations. Okay, When we go to Papua New Guinea where we have 8 million people, you have three radiologists. Having AI there I think is going to be a, a significant Product for them in terms of day to day care, but in developed nations, I, I still am not sure about where the role for AI sits in day to day practice. And is it fair to say that you have the same reservations?
1: Uh, I think the current the the current AI offerings, it's unclear mm-hmm. what what they're actually achieving, mm-hmm. um, and I think part of that is also legislative or economic. Yeah. In that if in Australia you have to bill Medicare and you can't bill Medicare for an AI report, you need a radiologist to read it. Yeah. And if I'm going to put my name at the end of a report, I still need to look at the report. And yeah. so where and exactly... Images. Right, and the images. Yeah. And where exactly does it does it fit in? As you say, I think in, in the developing world where the option is, you know, just your own opinion and you may be a, a poorly trained general practitioner or nurse practitioner or, or no practitioner just yeah. you know whoever's around and an AI report that difference yeah. is probably much more useful yeah. but I, again just to reiterate, I'm making that claim about the current state mm-hmm. I, I think there is a non-insignificant change that over the next few decades, AI does actually live up and exceeds the prospects that even the most optimistic AI researchers have put out, Mm. in which case not only will radiology be entirely changed, but everything will be.
0: Um, Yeah. Look, the reason I ask you that too is at the charity we are doing uh, an AI project with Vietnam, the Hanoi Medical University Hospital, and because we really believe that there is a focus or a, a, a area of need in developing nations. So we're looking at breast malignancy, a double read, with that read coming from AI and a radiologist as opposed to just a radiologist. So we, we really believe that could help in the area of developing nations. But when it comes to developed nations, I, I do agree with you. I think we have a, a long way to go until we can say that it has, it has been the holy grail. Now, there is one question that we need to come to because it has defined in many ways Frank Gaylard and, and and Melbourne in terms of the, 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 the centre for where this began, that's Radiopedia. Radiopedia, I believe, is unarguably now the world's premier online library resource. And I think most people who have knowledge of radiology and do a lot of radiology would also agree that. It's an incredibly... Uh, informative online collaborative radiology resource. I use it all the time as a consultant radiologist. And I know a lot of my colleagues do. If I have a a query about um, anything, the first resource I will go to is Radiopaedia. Importantly, it also provides a wonderful free resource for radiologists in developing nations globally, which has had a very positive impact. I've I've spoken to radiologists in developing nations about Radiopaedia and all of them know about Radiopedia, And that's tribute to what you've achieved. RAB is indebted, as mentioned earlier on, to Radiopedia for the support that you have provided for the charity in numerous projects, including the International Certificate. And you personally have donated a lot of time and all your profits from your exceptional neuroradiology training series, Project Alice, to Radiology Across Borders. And for those of you who don't know Project Alice, go to the Radiopedia website and Look it up. It's an exceptional training resource for neuroradiology that Frank entertains and educates with. You have a mantra to create the best radiology reference available and to make it available for free, forever, and for all. A long-winded introduction into asking you what were your reasons for establishing Radiopedia?
1: Procrastination.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Radiopedia came out of...
1: Um, The year that we were studying, my wife and I were studying for our uh, final exams in radiology. And as I mentioned before, my wife's she's an Asian Hermione Granger. So she studies a lot more than me. She gets better marks than me. She can sit at a desk for eight hours nonstop. Uh, I get, as I mentioned, with why I couldn't do neurosurgery, I, I don't have that kind of attention span. And so, during the 18 months that led up to our final exam, which incidentally, my wife got the gold medal for, um, I had a lot of spare time on my hands because she was studying a lot more than I was. And I started playing with this idea of creating a a Wikipedia for radiology. And I played with, this is going back to 2005, Mm. right? So- now, when we think of Wikipedia, it's this—it's this entity that's been around forever. Uh, mm. But it wasn't in 2005; it was only a few years old, and it was just at the time when uh, people started noticing that this was working, mm. and that it was a remarkable achievement that you could open up this platform to the entire population of the world that was online. Mm and that anyone could edit it, and out of what sounds like complete chaos would emerge a resource that rivaled Encyclopedia Britannica. And, mm. and at the time, at, around that time, was when the first comparisons between Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia were being made mm-hmm. and sort of showing that, you know, there were differences and weaknesses but that it wasn't clear which one was better. Mm-hmm. Now there's basically no doubt, right? Yeah. There's yeah. no doubt that Wikipedia uh, for pretty much every metric that you would be interested in, perhaps with the exception of typos, mm-hmm. is, uh, exceeds any other resource. But back then it was just starting to um, gain traction. And I contributed for a while to Wikipedia, but I found that the the tone of the website is really aimed at a general audience mm-hmm. and as it should be because that's its, its yep. you know, reason for existing. But that wasn't very interesting as someone who was studying for their radiology exams. The level of detail that I wanted in radiology didn't really fit in the more general tone of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And um, I have benefited greatly from having many people who have been willing to follow in the the mission or vision that I've been able to articulate. Mm -hmm. But I'm not great at doing that. I much prefer to build my own thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the combination of Wikipedia not being the great, the, the right tone for what I wanted to contribute and the fact that I like to build stuff myself mm-hmm. meant that I launched Radiopedia during that period of having time where my wife was ignoring me because she was studying <laughs> harder than I was. Uh, and that really, it was mostly, <clears throat> it didn't start off as a, startup It didn't start off with the idea of getting to where I am now. It really started off as a way of mucking around with Linux, putting my notes online in a way that I could get them learning the skills that were required to get it up and running at the time. Mm. And, uh, and at every stage, and, and still to this day, it kind of just takes the next step on its own. Mm. Um, it, it's not driven in the way that a commercial business would be and i think that's largely why we've been able to retain a model that is fundamentally different from that of other um, educational or publication platforms where they're much more driven by growth or income than we are
0: yeah i think radiopedia and radiology cross is are similar in that way it seems to me that both are driven by a need to exist financially, but that's not the reason we're there. We're there because we want to assist, and the people who are involved genuinely want to be a part of it. And it's that genuine desire to be a part of it, which, which is really the basis for it growing. I know I can speak for radiology cross-borders, and everyone who is involved really enjoys being involved. And the people I've spoken to at Radiopedia, I get the feeling that's the same thing. They really Absolutely. enjoy being part of Radiopedia
1: and i think one of the one of the things that has been lost in public hospital appointments and private practice in radiology is the sense of giving to the community and contributing in a direct way yeah. to to the health outcomes of your community it's become so um segmented and disjointed that you work in your office on your little referral group. And it's pretty easy to not notice the impact that you're having. Mm. And in in Western medicine, in a wealthy country, you can't help but notice that 90% of what you're doing is not terribly um, effective. You know, I, I mean, I... Every day I would report half a dozen or a dozen meningioma follow-ups in patients who have a tiny meningioma or have had a meningioma resected and where they're getting followed up every year and it doesn't come back or it doesn't grow or it grows very slowly. Mm. You don't get a sense that that report is changing anything. And medicine is filled with people who got into medicine to help others. And in wealthy nations – I think a lot of people look at their days and realise that eh, it's a bit hard to point your finger to how you're actually helping others. Mm. It's not that you're not. Um, so I'm not that cynical, or at least not most days. <laughs> but um, I think everyone's role in healthcare in countries like Australia is so narrow that it's hard to see your effect. Whereas when you read the feedback that we get from people from developing nations mm. or middle income nations, but just in a rural setting where they don't have the resources and you realize how much the one hour that you put into writing a summary article about a condition has had an effect on that person's ability to diagnose a patient in their community with a specific condition. Mm. Um, that is a much more tangible effect. And yeah. I think Radiopedia is a, a beacon to people who want to have that kind of effect and be surrounded by people who feel the same way. Um, yeah. And if there's one thing that I've been able to do is I've been able to articulate that
0: clearly enough for people to join in. Yeah, no, I think it's a, uh, look, I think what you've created at Radiopedia really is a community and a family. And I think that's the way I perceive it. That's one of the reasons we're so successful. I know personally from RAB that for something to succeed, you do need to be very focused and really commit a lot of hours and time into the, into the growth of the organization. But the outcomes that you get are extremely rewarding. What effect has Radiopedia had on you personally?
1: Well, um, so it's definitely been, it's now coming into 17 years of working on Radiopedia essentially every day Mm. for that time. Yeah. And I don't keep careful track of how much time I put in, but it's probably in the order of 20 hours a week. Mm Mm-hmm. Minimum for the yeah. past seventeen years, probably without a single day that I haven't <coughs> answered an email or interacted in some way with the mm-hmm. website. So it has defined the the entirety of my uh, radiology career because it started at the end of my training and has been going through every uh-huh. year that I've been a consultant. Mm-hmm. And it's defined what I'm best known for and it's defined many of the decisions that I've made in terms of my employment and um, how much work I do at the hospital, et cetera. And it's also been this incredible privilege to be in a position where I can work less at the hospital to devote more time to Radiopedia. Uh, It helps that I have a wife that's also a radiologist and who's head of department and works a ridiculous amount. So, (laughs) you know, I'm a bit of a kept husband. (laughs) Um, But uh, at least it it acts as a justification for doing that. And um, I think I've had more effect probably through the website on people's lives and health outcomes, if you want to use that term, than I could ever hope to do directly by just sitting in my office reporting. Uh,
0: Frank, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, what you do as a neuroradiologist is exceptionally important. What you do in terms of your research is exceptionally important. But what you've achieved through Radiopedia in terms of the global reach and the global assistance through those 20 hours a week for 17 years is phenomenal. And And I don't think you would ever look back on your life and say, I didn't do something with my life. It's something (laughs) which you have achieved and it's very unique. And I think, you you know, all the credit to you for that. What impact do you think Radiopedia has had globally and what would be amongst your proudest or most memorable moments at Radiopedia? So these
1: things are notoriously hard to measure. Mm, Yeah. And there's a tendency, I think, everywhere to ignore things that are hard to measure and overvalue things that are easy to measure because they're easy to measure. Hmm. And as a result, people end up spending their time doing the wrong things like chasing how many dollars they have in the bank, because that's an easy metric rather than, you know, harder metrics like is it fulfilling or is it interesting? So, The simple answer is I I don't have a concrete answer to that question. Yes. But I know we receive letters from people every day pretty much who express how much Radiopedia has meant to them in whatever circumstance they happen to be in. Mm. A large number of those are from people who are in low- or middle-income nations Mm. A large number are from people who are in rural centres in wealthy nations, but, you know, proportionately underserviced, mm-hmm. uh, but also lots of people from, from wealthy regions. And so I know that we have an audience and we know that that audience finds us useful. But if there's one moment that sort of captures a... A concrete sense of what it means. I was at a conference. I don't remember which one. It was either interstate or overseas. And I'd been asked to speak about the history of Radiopedia and I'd given my talk. And at the end of it, there was a time for questions. And an audience member got up and was given the microphone and she read out a pre-prepared message that she and her fellow radiologists from and this is terrible that I don't remember the country. Mm-hmm. I want to say Pakistan, but I'm not sure, mm-hmm. had prepared for her to read out and thank me for the work on Radiopedia. Mm. And I was um I was very touched at that moment. It was pretty sort of an, an emotional mm. You don't expect it. You're always talking about, you know, radiope- for me, I, I constantly talk about Radiopedia. I'm constantly asked about it, and it's this almost abstract thing. Mm-hmm. I know that it has an effect on people, but it is not in a tangible way. And to have someone who stands up and has rehearsed a speech to thank me personally, for starting a website because of what it has allowed them to do at home Mm. um, was very humbling. Mm. And um, it made me think that if there's one person that feels this strongly, then Mm. there are many others who aren't in that room who are also getting a great deal of benefit from what we're doing. And, And in some ways, you know, I keep getting the praise for starting Radiopedia and I'm I'm happy to take the praise for starting Radiopedia, but I don't want to take praise for building Radiopedia because really the, the website is the culmination of literally hundreds of people who have devoted significant portions of their spare time to creating what it's there. And so I'm sort of a lightning rod for praise Mm -hmm. when it comes to people standing up and telling me how amazing Radio Pedia is or getting an award or whatever it is. Um, And it feels a little bit awkward because I know that the thing that I was able to do is get the ball rolling Mm. and that I've been able to keep the website developing and do the admin and and all of that side. Mm. But really, when you look at the website, when you look at the thing that people that find so useful, a small percentage of it is mine. It is, as you said before, it is really a community. Mm. And that like all these organizations, you have someone as a figurehead, but that that is what it is. Mm. Um, And I just wish I could more easily pass on all of that focus onto the people that are actually doing all the work these days Mm.
0: rather than me who sits around paying bills and speaking to developers Mm. no i hear what you're saying it's a very humble uh, answer as well but but you are right there are so many people who would make radiopedia such the the success which it is and they all deserve credit as well from the coders to the radiologists to everybody—and. It's a wonderful resource. Frank, I'm going to change the flow and a little bit of the text of the conversation now, and I'm going to ask you something completely unrelated. What does Frank Gaylard like to do to relax? (laughs) Not much these
1: days because uh, I still haven't managed to step back from the hospital as much as I would, so I don't have as much spare time as I would like. But as I said, I've got two boys that are roughly 12 and 10. I think they're both slightly younger than that, Mm -hmm. maybe 11 and 9, but I'd lose track. Mm. And um, I I think probably just hanging out with them is the thing that I enjoy the most at the moment. I'm Mm. sure that will change. The oldest (laughs) one is already starting to be a bit of a teenager, so Mm. the days are numbered. But Mm. um, we, you know, we sit on our stools in the garage with an audio book on painting Warhammer figurines (laughs) <laughs> or playing board games or something. Yeah. If I'm yeah. left on my own, then most of the time I will either read a book or play a computer game. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm an only child, so they're yeah. the kind
0: of things that I gravitate towards. Yeah. No, it's. A, I think the family side is something that probably people don't know about Frank Gaylord. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I did a bit of background research before speaking to you, and... I was actually surprised how much time you do commit to your uh, boys, and I think that's that's a real compliment in terms of how significant that is in your life, and I think that's wonderful.
1: Well, it's an interesting thing. I um, I was re- completely prepared for the idea that children would not mean very much to me until they were, you know, eight or ten mm-hmm. or something. Um, I was an only child. I was a very happy only child. I didn't want to have more than one child, if any. Mm. And my wife wanted to have one or two kids, so we, we sort of started. And the moment Ben, who's my oldest, was born, it was a a, a really significant moment. And and when I say the moment, I, I do mean the first moment I laid eyes on that little wrinkly <laughs> purple thing. Mm. Um, it completely blew my mind, and it sort of changed a lot about where I saw my priorities being. Mm. And um, there's no doubt that as as proud I am of Radiopedia, and uh, and I very much am, mm. um, it pales in comparison to mm. how much enjoyment I get out of hanging out with my my two kids, mm. and. I'm I'm not sure. As an only child, I've only recently, and by that I mean maybe over the last three or four years, realised how much I missed out on by not having a brother mm-hmm. to to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the reason I get to hang out with my boys
0: is mm-hmm. that I'm lucky enough to have a wife that will go to work instead of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I, I can turn that around. I can actually say your wife's very lucky to have a husband who's doing that. Please tell her that. No, I, I, I honestly do believe that. I think that's a real tribute to you that you're in the position that you are but you are doing more than most men would do. In terms of looking after the children did you in true. your stalking of me online <laughs> did you happen to come
1: across my it wasn't favorite. online
0: by the way it was with discussions so. uh,
1: <laughs> did you happen to see my favorite photo of me and the boys where they were just the right age to be a mass spectroscopy trace of normal brain <laughs> no i didn't actually see that No, so i'm sure if anyone's interested if you google it you'll be able to find a photo of the three of us in pyjamas with Charlie being Colleen, Ben being creatinine and me being NAA, and we were just at the right height. I think they were about six and four maybe or something. Right. Um, I'm not sure if there'll ever be a time when they're a height that makes sense because Ben's ridiculously tall. So that I guess at some point maybe we'll
0: be like a low-grade tumour, maybe. I'm not sure. Well, look. Moving on from that, we've got to the end of the formalities where we now move into what we call the magic minute. Mm-hmm. So it probably goes for a little bit more than a minute, but this is our bit of the rap cast where we get to know a little bit more about Frank Gallard, the person, not Frank Gellard, the clinician or neuroradiologist. So, Frank, if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you two types of questions. One is an open-ended question, so... Feel free to describe whatever you want. The second is a choice of two, and you have to choose one of them. And if you don't want to answer, just feel free to say pass. And I'll prep you up beforehand that I did discuss this with one of your close colleagues, and I got a lot, <laughs> of, this, got a lot of this information from him. And so if you're surprised where I got this information, it's, well, I'll tell you the colleague later on in the, in the <laughs> interview. But all above board. So, if you're ready, we might sure. we might start the clock. So, Frank Gaylard, we will now be starting The Magic Minute. Frank, what's your favourite movie? See, I tell my boys that adults don't have
1: favourite movies because mm-hmm. that's a kid thing to have. Right. So, I don't really – I can't answer that. I would say recently mm. I saw Dune recently and I was blown away. The new by- Dune. The New Dune, okay. the, de- the old Dune is terrible. Um, yeah. The New Dune was amazing. I don't think it's my favourite movie, but yeah. it's the most impressive movie I've seen in a while, which was probably partly because it was the first post-COVID movie that I right. went to and I took my oldest son um, and very much enjoyed it
0: and it's one of my favourite books. Mm. So, um, uh, Look, yeah. I must admit I saw the original Dune in 1984 and I actually didn't think it was that bad in 1985. So you should the watch new it Dune- again. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably forty years on, yeah, probably isn't that good. So, okay, well, that's one movie to look out for the new June. What about your favourite actor or actress, if you have one? Uh, my wife would kill me if I said Charlize Theron. I suppose. <laughs> okay, Charlize <laughs> Theron. It is. It is. What was the movie she was in where she's a serial killer? That was so Charlize yeah. Theron, but it was an excellent movie. I'm not sure. Now, I've, I've been asked to specifically ask you this. Do you actually enjoy f1 yeah I actually do, but it's only mm. recently it's yes, a very strange <laughs> it's a very
1: strange thing and i'm I'm possibly more surprised than anyone that I'm enjoying it and yeah. um I have never followed sport mm-hmm. um and mostly because the idea of watching other people do things has never particularly interested me mm-hmm um, and so it 's not just sports specifically really? i i don 't watch i don 't enjoy watching people do stuff. I prefer historically to go and do, do things it. myself yeah. but and and I feel like a sheep because my introduction to Formula One was through the Netflix series mm-hmm. and i I kind of enjoyed that and I know that I was being emotionally manipulated, and I know the story <laughs> was being edited. Mm. To, to achieve that ends, but I couldn't help it. And yeah. there's enough geekiness mm. to it in terms of the thing that I particularly enjoy is the rules change every year and mm. you have all these engineers trying to find ways mm. around the new rules and mm. the – I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I don't think it makes sense that I like it, but I, I do. I even went to the Formula One Grand Prix in Melbourne last year, this year. Oh, wow. So, um, so do you get and up and it watch fun. it late at night?
0: Not often. Sometimes. Not often. That okay. <laughs> leads me to the next question. I was asked to ask you, do you actually sleep? And if so, for, if, if that's the case, for how many hours a night? <laughs> I do sleep.
1: Um, <laughs> again, I sleep longer than my wife lately. Um, <laughs> I, I sleep about six hours a night, six to seven hours a night. Oh, that's pretty but, healthy. But I have... Um, I have extremely vivid, long, drawn-out and nonsensical dreams. Right. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Inception.
0: I have. Yes, excellent So
1: that idea of in dream time things go for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, I have that most nights when I wake up it feels like I've been asleep for a week or two. Yes. And I don't think sleeping is as – my experience of sleeping – is not what I see other people having. Mm-hmm. When I see other people waking up, they seem rested. Yes. Um, I am exhausted most <laughs> mornings. Yeah. And it takes me a few minutes to um, extricate myself from the ridiculous two-week narrative that I've been immersed in. Um <laughs> And so, although I need it physiologically, psychologically, sleep doesn't do a lot for me. And <laughs> Just so the reverse of what it's meant to. There are long periods yeah. of time where I, I don't sleep a, a huge amount. Um, yeah. And so, if I can't sleep, I'll get up and do some work or read a book or something. Um, yes. But, no, I, re- I sleep. I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I have crazy friends who do that polyphasic <laughs> sleeping thing, but I'm not one of them.
0: Right. I have a question now pertains, like looking behind you now, I can see in the background, and I've seen this in a few of your videos and Mm. your tutes, you have a guitar in the background. Now the question (laughs) is, do you actually play it? And if so, what genre of music can we expect for your first release? Oh, I play very badly. I
1: played piano and saxophone at school Mm -hmm. and uh, jazz for both of them mostly. I was never Mm -hmm. very good at either of them. Um, um, my 12-year-old son is better than I ever was at piano already. And that's probably because he practices every day and that's probably because he has a mum that forces him to practice every day, <laughs> whereas I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I never got very good at it. Guitar I never learnt. I sort of taught myself and um, I play the usual, you know, bad pub song medleys. Mm-hmm. Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, etc. But um, I haven't been playing it for years and years. It's there to remind me that I should be playing it, and to act as a uh, as a nagging voice of what I'm <laughs> not doing that I should be doing. Along with every book that I have not read that's on Sitting the shelf. Shelf. Yeah. yeah. What about your favourite holiday destination? See, I don't like holidays. No. Holidays are highly overrated. I think <laughs> you go somewhere and it's a lot of travel and a lot of hassle. Um, we have a house down by the beach, um, in a very deserted part mm. of Victoria where you can go down there and not see the neighbors. And, mm. um, I like going down there because mm. it's a break, but, um, travel to overseas places, mm. I've, I've always felt I think in the days before documentaries and, and Google, mm-hmm. there was a lot more reason to travel. Mm-hmm. Now people seem to travel to get the same photos that they can already look at on Instagram that someone else has taken. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I come from a, I have the privilege of having traveled quite a bit with my parents. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of know what travel is like and it doesn't have a huge. Uh, draw card for me but the worst possible place is the beach like a hot (laughs) a hot sandy beach with terrible wi-fi is (laughs) uh, is the worst possible holiday and that is exactly the holiday that both my boys and my wife like so that's invariably
0: where we end up because Um, you will be breaking your that will be the first time in 17 years that you won't have any radiopedia for any day if you lose the internet that might be the case. I'll probably <laughs> find an internet cafe somewhere. <laughs> okay, so we move on to our one of two choices. Mm-hmm. Frank, do you prefer gin or beer? Oh, gin. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. Very <laughs> much so. <laughs> that's not even a question. <laughs> I've heard it's also cocktails there too, yeah? Oh
1: yes. Gin yes. In, in any of its actually spirits pretty much in any of their forms Perfect, uh, are very yeah. dear to my heart. There's <laughs> there's so much variety and um I think you have to have very strong rules around mm-hmm. this. And so 4 p.m. is, um, is you oh, know, there's drink. no drinking before 4 p.m. You're allowed to mix your drink before not, 4 p.m. Yeah. So that it's ready at 4 p.m., okay. but you're not actually allowed to drink it. And that's something that came out of homeschooling <laughs> where um, for yeah. for a long time there, there was a lot of temptation to start Way earlier than four PM, but True. Uh, I, I needed to put some rules down. So <laughs> yes, gin is is a wonderful drink, and uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, move. Let's move on to something that's a bit more um, filling, and that's do you prefer <laughs> Greek yogurt, berries, and muesli to? or steak? <laughs> ah, I
1: love the yogurt and berries and the good muesli. <laughs> I don't eat steak very much.
0: Yeah, Um, I've heard. Very healthy choice. No, no. Would you rather be seen in a smart black suit or a pair of chinos? See, now,
1: this is something that um, I've had a very... uh, My position on this has changed many times over
0: the years. So when I was... Gosh, um, my my source... Has been so accurate. He said (laughs) exactly those words.
1: So when I was a registrar. Exactly those words. um, I dressed. Mm. So I don't like dressing well. I don't think um, there's no part of me Mm. that enjoys dressing well for its own sake. Um, And when I was a registrar, I was Mm. pushing the boundaries of how badly you could dress and turn up to work and not be asked to go home to change. Um, When I came back to Royal Melbourne (laughs) after my fellowships and after working at other hospitals, I was very aware of the fact that in a number of the hospitals that I'd worked, radiologists were treated like mouse monkeys and that the surgeons and the neurologists would – you know, sit in the front row of the MDM, multidisciplinary team meeting, and tell the radiologist when to speak and what to do uh, in the same way that they spoke to allied health or nurses or the pathologists. And I hated that. And I thought that that wasn't Mm -hmm. good enough for me and it wasn't good enough for the patients because surgeons – You know, imaging is my area, not theirs. And they're not going to tell me what to say about it or when I can speak. And one of the things that I realized that was feeding into this was that the pathologists and the radiologists at a lot of the places that I'd seen would be wearing polo shirts and chinos and sitting in the second or third row off the side, whereas the surgeons and the neurologists would be dressed in their suit sitting in the front row. And so I made a deliberate choice mm-hmm. when I came back that I would sit in the front row and I would wear a suit and I would own radiology. And that meant that if a, mm-hmm. a study was being discussed, I would get the first and last word. Yeah. In the same way that if I started talking about, mm-hmm. you know, what size sucker they should use when taking out a GBM, mm-hmm they would want to own that space mm-hmm. and the pathologist should own the does this look like a mitosis or not space. Mm-hmm. And so for many years I was the only radiologist in my department yeah. who would wear a suit and tie and and, and because I kind of geek out mm-hmm. on things, I kind of got into mm-hmm. trying to dress better than average, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And then COVID came. And when I've come back to the hospital and MDM meetings, I'm now 15 yes. years older than I was when I turned up with my suit. And I don't need to wear a suit anymore um, to be taken seriously. And so I've gone back to dressing terribly <laughs> and it's great. Uh I didn't even, I wore a T-shirt to work the other day and it was like, hey, I can get away with this. This is, uh, so I'm, I am think the future is looking rosy from that. Gone point. full
0: circle. Uh, I must say when I do my MDTs now and I do them remotely so I can wear my pyjamas. So,
1: so I, I think there's a lot to be said for radiologists are their worst enemy when it comes to this. There's so many radiologists that do not stand up for their profession And uh, if you're one of those, then don't complain that you're not taken seriously. And unfortunately, stupid things like the clothes that you wear and where you sit in a room and who speaks first and who speaks last and who accepts criticism rather than pushing back, they're the things that define the pecking order in these hospitals. Mm. And you can be as um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and naive and as you want. The reality is big Mm. teaching hospitals have a pecking order and if Mm. you want to not be picked on, you need to stand up Mm. and play with the rest of them even if it means doing things that are kind of dumb like wearing a, a piece of patterned material around your neck. (laughs) Um, but if I was a, I wouldn't change anything that I did. And if I was giving advice to a junior consultant coming to a department and wanting to cement their place and to be taken seriously, then, you know, it's not necessarily that the suit and tie is the right thing to do because it depends on the hospital. But I think they need to look at what the social signaling that's going on in their department and in their hospital is, and what are the things that will make them carve out their place and be taken seriously. And we owe that not just to ourselves but to our profession and to our patients because if if surgeons are running around thinking they know more than you do about the scans, then, you know, the patients are
0: the ones that are suffering at the end. Hmm. Now, that's useful advice. Now... This is for all the registrars that you teach and the registrars that will be coming through. What annoys you more, registrars not turning up to tutes or leaving a reporting session early?
1: Wow. I'm not sure. More? <laughs> they both annoy me a lot. I <laughs> know. Oh, you have to choose one or the other. This is a... A or B. Uh, I suppose leaving early would probably be the one that annoys me the most. We're leaving the reporting session early. Yeah, right. But that's you know, yeah. Royal Melbourne's a funny place, and I think we have. Uh, oh. I never left the reporting early
0: <laughs> earlier than my consultant. <laughs> no, I don't think I did too.
1: And um, no, true. And I know where this comes from because I actually got into a lot of trouble for this. But there, there, <laughs> when I was a junior consultant. I was rostered to somewhere. It wasn't MR. It was probably CT or somewhere like that. And at five fifteen or something, both my registrars just left, and I stayed to sign off a bunch of studies and do an extra couple of inpatients that had been set. And I sent, <laughs> I took a photo of their empty seats and uh, posted it on Twitter saying, look at my hard-working registrars at 5.15 or something. And um, I, I was brought into the head of department's office the next day and told that that was not appropriate. In, in fairness, it's probably not appropriate. But, you know, at the same time, um, I, I don't know. I feel like an old man. Don't get me started.
0: <laughs> uh, actually, that's, I think that's... Um- I think I actually did hear that story, but not quite in that much detail. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I thought, and I was told this is an important question to ask. So. But I think I'm the not turning up to tutes
1: is also important because every time that a, uh, a senior clinician of whatever yeah. ilk turns up to a tutorial and few people bother turning up, yeah. the next tutorial they'll turn up to will be worse prepared yeah. and they're likely right. to say no to the next tutorial. Yeah, true. Uh, which yeah, is true. fine if the person involved is a terrible teacher and you don't want them to give you yeah. tutorials. But if you actually want to receive teaching, then you, you have yes. to bring yourself to it.
0: Yeah. Um, yes. Would you rather have one hour with CGP Grey <laughs> or Barack Obama?
1: Oh, CGP Grey, without a doubt.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> what I thought you'd say. <laughs> Do you want to enlighten everybody on what CGP YouTuber, means to you? Blogger. I'm not sure he's a blogger. He's definitely a podcaster,
1: uh, and he does these little YouTube videos of um, animated stick figures explaining things. And he's he's a interesting. He's an interesting guy, and I think you know we share a lot of similarities in our view of of the world. And and I think, so I'm not sure. Thinking back to that answer, mm-hmm. I think I have much more in common with CGP Grey, but um, maybe Obama would be more Grey, yeah. interesting. I just don't trust Obama to give me a straight answer on anything. Not because I have anything against Obama per se, but just because of politicians <laughs> in general. <laughs> but you think- I think an hour would not be long <laughs> yeah. enough to get through the Mm. very well-rehearsed veneer enough um Mm. i've there's a podcast that cjp gray and uh, brady heron who is an australian from adelaide who lives in london and is the uh, brains behind the number file um youtube channel and a number of other youtube channels so maths one and they had a podcast called hello internet for years and years, right. uh, and it's unfortunately died because of COVID. Um, no one's died, but the podcast has died. And I was been re-listening to their old uh, yeah. episodes, and uh, yeah, for anyone who kind of enjoys a bit of silliness in a geeky kind of way, uh, CGP Grey is good value.
0: Okay, something to look out for. I I didn't know about it. I have to be honest until I spoke to my source. So it'd be definitely something that I'll Thanks, be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll finish with the last one, Facebook or TikTok. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Neither. I thought that might be the case. That's why I thought I'd
1: throw it in. I've, uh, I've gone to great lengths to sever my ties to all noisy social media news mm. outlets and um, so I don't have any of those on my phone. I have a Facebook account because everyone does, but I I don't honestly remember the last time I logged in. Mm-hmm. I occasionally post things to Twitter and Facebook for Wikipedia, but never for myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, TikTok, I mean, I did. You know, I, I make a point of going and seeing what these things are because I don't want to become like my father, who mm-hmm. can't use email, let alone knows what TikTok is. Mm. And, and I could see myself getting sucked into watching these videos mm. um, forever. Mm. But uh, I think these the, the constant stream of news and stories and outrage is really bad for your mental health mm. or, or at the very least distracting. Mm. And so for the last couple of years, I've gotten rid of all of it and I rely on people that I know to tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. So if the queen of England died today, mm-hmm. I wouldn't find out until someone mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people just assume that everyone knows these things so they don't mention things. And I can go days without finding out important world mm-hmm. events, but I haven't suffered from it. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's not actually a bad advice. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Reddit is probably more the thing that I'm vulnerable to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I had to get rid of that because I was spending
0: too, too much, much time. time. On <laughs> That's a problem with these channels, isn't it? These social media platforms, you end up spending an inordinate amount of time on it. Frank Gaylard, thank you very much for the interview. We, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. We've been um, very much looking forward to this and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the event as well. And, we really do want to thank you again and thank Radiopedia for you know, the contribution you've made to radiology teaching globally and also to the work of our charity. And it's, uh, it's a very special partnership that we treasure at the, at the charity and we really do hope to develop it further. I also want to mention too quickly your virtual conference that will be online now. I'm not sure whether the RAPcast will be released before then, but if you just want <laughs> to mention those dates... In case oh, you put me on the spot it's somewhere at the end of july end of july okay so keep yeah. your eye out for the radiopedia um online course for those uh coming from tier four countries i believe it's uh free access and mm-hmm. uh that's an ongoing support for the developing nations which is just wonderful frank Gaylard, thank you very much for being on the rapcast and we look forward to when we next meet and when i meet you in person Please subscribe to the Rabcasts channel on your preferred podcast subscription service. And please consider leaving a rating and a comment to let us know what you thought of this episode. To find out more about Radiology Across Borders, visit our website at radiologyacrossborders.org and follow us on LinkedIn to stay up to date with the latest happenings at the charity. We hope to have you join us and look forward to our next episode.